The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. When we looked uh, last week at this, this phrase that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Uh, Jesus was in that moment confronting some of his rivals. We, the, the Bible calls them Pharisees, some very, very serious, very earnest uh, religious people uh, that they also were seeking to know who is this Jesus and why, why does he matter to my life? Uh, well, this week, it's, it, it is the disciples that are asking questions. Uh, so we go from rivals to friends, and I, I think it might help you to keep in mind that it is Jesus talking to friends as we come to our text uh, this evening. All right, so we're going to start in at John 14, uh, beginning at the first verse. And it says this. This is Jesus talking. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Okay, why are the disciples troubled? Why would these friends be troubled? Okay, let me give you a little bit of, of what we just came out of in chapter 13. There's three reasons that are presented there of why Jesus' closest friends would be troubled. The first is this. Early on in, the, in that chapter, Jesus did a remarkable thing, and he got down on his knees and did the work of a servant, did the work of a slave when he washed the disciples' feet. And in, as he did that, he said, oh, yeah, and what I'm doing, you will also do. Now, in that moment, there might have been a little bit in the disciples thinking, okay, I'm going to do the work of a, of a slave. I'm going to be a servant. This isn't exactly in mind, uh, what I had in mind when I signed up for this whole following Jesus thing. Well, the second thing happens in the middle of the chapter where Jesus tells this group of friends, you know, uh, one of you is going to betray me. Okay, obviously, uh, to have a good friend come to you, you put yourself in that position, you would find that a bit troubling. And then finally, the other thing that Jesus says to them is, is, I am with you now, you can see me, but I'm not going to be with you much longer. My hour is coming where well, I will depart, okay? Three troubling things um, that Jesus somehow acknowledges right here, their trouble, and then follows up by saying, but trust me, trust me. It continues. Let's go on to, to verse two. My father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, I would have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. Okay. Um, I think that it's remarkable that Jesus follows up acknowledging that his friends are troubled by saying what? by saying, I have a place for you. Doesn't that connect to where we're at as young adults and college students? That so much of what we seek is finding our place. It's what we're after when we ask somebody what their major is, right? 
what's your place at this school? It's what we're after when we ask where somebody lives. There is something about this need that we have to know our place in the world. And it's remarkable to me that Jesus seeks to comfort a troubled group of friends by saying, I have prepared a place for you. And, and he says, and you know the way to get there. Or, or do we? Do they? The text continues. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you were going, so how can we know the way? Okay. Now, maybe I'm speaking for other people in here. Thank God for Thomas. Thank God for Thomas. Okay, I know in my life I have found myself so often in a situation like this, often in the classroom. It certainly happened when I was an undergrad and probably happened even more in seminary, that moment where the professor is talking about something and the assumption is that, oh, everybody in this class knows what I'm talking about. And I'm sitting there going, I don't think I know what she's talking about. And I'm looking around the room, and everybody it seems to be jiving with what she's talking about. And I'm going, oh, gosh, what she's talking about. I'm a little bit embarrassed to, to confess that I don't know what's being talked about. And then there's that guy that sits over in the corner that raises his hand and goes, excuse me, uh, what are you talking about right there? What is that? Oh, hashtag hero. You just bailed me out. Okay, that's, I think, a little bit of what Thomas does for the disciples, and I think for us right here, of saying, okay, there is this place, there is this promise, we're taking it seriously, but help me out. We don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. And that sets up one of the most famous passages, I think, in all of Scripture, and I want us to read verses 6 and 7 together. Let's do this. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Okay, let's stop there. Provocative right here. Okay, similar to what we looked at last week, when we talked about in Jesus saying, I am the light, the definitive article. I am not a light among many other lights. I am the light of the world. Right here, Jesus is making a very similar claim. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it gets more provocative when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is a claim to exclusivity that, particularly in our culture, can make us very, very uncomfortable. It has us going, who wins? Who wins when if the way to God is only through one person, is only one way? Who wins in that? That's why it's really important that we keep in mind that even though Jesus is saying, no one comes to the Father except through me, what we can't ignore is that he says, but I am providing a way for that. Now, what I've come to understand is that there's a lot of people that read this verse or hear this verse for the, the first time, and the image that they have 
And I invite you to consider what is the image you have of Jesus when, we, when, when he calls himself the way, the truth, and the life? Because what I've come to understand is one of the prevailing images here is, is of Jesus as kind of this kind of stoic, angry guard of the way that is this type of moral police that's saying, are you good enough? Did you get it all right? Where I think what we need to do and what I hope to do on a night like this is maybe change the image we have. If that is the type of image you have of Jesus and the God who is his father, I want to to maybe say you've got it wrong. That what we have here rather would be Jesus more maybe standing near this way if we want to tease out this image going, hey, 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 right here. Come, I'll take you there. Please, come with me. Come with me. What's the image you have of Jesus? What's the image you have of what God wants to do in your life and the life of your friends, the lives of your family, when it relates to this verse? It's a very exclusive claim, but the way may be narrow, but the way is generous. I have provided a way and a place for you, says Jesus. All right, so that's in response to Thomas' question. Now it's Philip's turn, verse eight. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, all who have faith in me will do the works I have been doing And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Don't you know me, Philip? What I think is implied right here is a deep desire for Jesus to have his friends know him. Later on, Jesus seems to invite Philip to know him by remembering what Jesus has already done, things that, that likely the disciples had seen, if not had heard about. What am I talking about? Just in the Gospel of John alone, we've already seen Jesus, as I already mentioned, wash the disciples' feet. We've seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. And and earlier on, he changed water into wine at a wedding just to keep the party going. These things you will do and even greater things. What I want to point out about these, these acts that I've just named and others that you would read about in the Gospel of John, which many of you have if you're doing the In Bible Challenge, is that they are all acts of grace and compassion and mercy These things you will do and even greater things are are as this invitation to say you will extend and do these same acts of grace and love and mercy and compassion 
And how will you do it? You will do it by the work of my spirit that is in you. The balance of chapter 14, which we won't take the time to read tonight, goes on to where Jesus says, what I promise to give to you is the, the spirit of truth, the comforter. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. It's not anything you have to do to get this spirit. It is a gift that I'm giving to you. Now, in this passage, uh, in, in what we already, already read, I, I actually I want to go back and, and say something about uh, when he says, ask anything in my name and I will give it to you. Okay, if I'm to be straight up with you, that is a, a passage that I have a hard time believing. As I was preparing for this talk, I found myself going, hmm, really? I got to tell you that the conviction that followed was that I don't ask enough of God to really know if that's true. Okay? I have a hunch I'm not the only one who's alone in this room when it comes to that. And so right there, we could do a whole talk, a whole series even on that passage. But at the very least, I want to challenge you to, to put, to ask God, to ask Jesus the things that are on your heart and mind. Give it a shot. See what happens. And then he gives us the spirit that we don't have to earn. He gives it to us, and there's nothing that can separate us from it. Now, in this passage, in the span of 16 verses, okay, I just want to point this out before we sh- I share a few reflections. In 16 verses, we've heard, we've heard about God the Father understanding it from Jesus, his son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the word Trinity is never used in the Bible, but it's one of the foundational doctrines, one of the things that we say we believe as Christians. And John 14 is a perhaps one of the clearest articulations of Trinitarian theology in all the Bible, where we get to know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. So what does it mean to believe and behave as people of this way, this truth, and this life? Three quick reflections before we sing a few more songs. First, let's work with this idea that the way is narrow but generous. Uh, As I've shared up in front of the inn before, that as an undergraduate student here at the University of Washington, I was, uh, I like to, I label myself almost with a little bit of pride that I was a dater. I dated a lot, okay? And on July 5th, 2002, uh, right here in the sanctuary of University Presbyterian Church, I walked down the aisle with Julianne Wilson and I exchanged some vows that, you know, that, that kind of made that type of dating of other women prohibited, okay? <laughs> you know, and, and uh, I know, I know that you guys, you guys are probably going, wow, that was probably really hard for you to turn away from all those options that I know that the R probably had. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. But here's what I'm getting at. In getting up in front of God and witnesses on July 5th, 2002, and exchanging vows with Julie, it is actually precisely the narrowness of romance 
that makes it special. Okay, it can't just be, ooh, you know, what do I want to take my pick of today? No, we know that it is in saying, you choose me and I choose you, that there is a type of narrowness. I am the way, the truth, and the life is narrow. I mean, we kind of see this, uh, you know, when we watch The Bachelor as well, right, where <laughs> you see... You see these women who, have, who presumably know what they're signing up to, and then they see Home Slice making out with somebody else, and they're like, oh, what? Why, why, is he, why is he doing that? Really? What? He made, he made out with... Okay. You see, there is this, this violation of what they believe should be happening right there. The way isn't necessarily getting narrower in that moment. And the protest that we see from, from those, those bachelorettes would be, wait a minute, isn't this supposed to narrow? And what happens if it's not me? There's something in us that craves that type of narrowness. I believe it's a fitting example for us to understand that the way is narrow, but precisely what makes this way special is that narrowness. And in what we're talking about here, we have to remember that that way is generous. It's not Jesus saying, there is a way. Good luck. Find it. No, he's saying, there is a way. And he's standing right in front of you. Apart from me. Now come with me, and I will show you the Father. The way is narrow, but generous. Two, as we grow, we get to know. As we know, we grow. July 5th, 2002. Let's fast forward to July 5th, 2007. Celebrating my fifth anniversary with my lovely wife. And for our fifth anniversary, there's a picture from our wedding day. And I show that. I know. How about those glasses? Okay. Those went away from the Harry Potter thing a little bit. But on our anniversary, our fifth anniversary, uh, Julie and I are going to go out on a date, and in the car, I had put our, the, the photo album from our wedding. And my first invitation to Julie was, let's go you know, pick one picture in here that we will go and recreate, kind of reenact five years later. And then afterwards, we went, to, uh, we went and did that. We had some pictures taken on our wedding day over at Golden Gardens. And we did. It was actually pretty fun, because we went out there to take some pictures. And it was, there were actually a bunch of in-students out there that I'm like, hey, can you guys take some wedding photos of us? It was pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, after that, we went to Canlis Restaurant. A buddy of mine is the, is the owner. So he, so he hooked us up in the little private dining room there. And we brought the wedding album in. And we started you know, looking through the wedding album. And, it's interesting that as we looked through this album, it wasn't this, oh, look at us. We were so in love five years ago. Our, much to my surprise and maybe to yours, as we flipped through the pages of that album, we were laughing. We were laughing out loud and saying things like, we thought we were in love that day. And no doubt we were in love that day. But there was a recognition of five years later, as we'd gotten to know some of the, you know, some of the, the nuances of each other, that there was a recognition that we were in such a different place 
that was with a love that went far deeper just five years later, that as we look through our wedding album, if we had the opportunity to go back and do our wedding again, we wouldn't. The place that we're in is a good place. In relationship to Jesus, when we're bold enough to step into that and really, really get to know this person, in the same way that we might get to know somebody that we're going to walk down an aisle with, I believe that when we earnestly invest in that relationship and receive the gifts of this person that is with us named Jesus, honestly, we're not going to want to go back. We're not going to want to go back. Finally, when we know Jesus, and as we grow in Jesus, when we know Jesus, we know what to do. <laughs> really? Is it that simple? Yes and no. Okay, let me, let me explain. In the passage that we just read, Jesus says, on this way, in this truth, in this life, these things you have seen me do, you will do, and even greater. these acts of love, these acts of mercy, these acts of compassion. Tonight, we celebrated a group of 16 deputies that will be headed out around the world. And I am so proud of them. I'm so excited for them. I know that God has something special for you. But these programs, like something that we'd name deputation, this two-month summer mission program, is, is really a canvas. It's a canvas and the relationships, the service, the things that, that you get to do, what you get to enter into, that's the art that's on that canvas. You see, deputation isn't the end itself. Deputation is the means to relationship. And really, everything that we do here around university ministries, things that we get up, we get up front and tell you about, and we get really excited about whether it's it's core groups or a trip to Malibu or a trip to you know some some trip to Peru or or the Dominican Republic. All of that is canvas, and the art is in relationship and relationships with each other, relationships with God that are sometimes confusing, that are sometimes messy, that are sometimes a bit abstract, and yet. The net result is this incredible work of art that somehow connects to us. When we know Jesus, we know what to do because the invitation is to extend that same grace, that same compassion, that same love that we see Jesus doing in even greater things. Do we trust that? Do we trust that this is true? So often, so many of us are, are so uh, concerned with trying to get it right, with trying to pursue a degree of certainty and to make sure that this is good for me, that we just miss the opportunity to step in and just enjoy doing these things and even greater things that Jesus invites us to in this way, this truth, 
in this life. We put so much energy into keeping our options open, not being confined to this narrow way, that perhaps we just fail to simply receive all that Jesus desires to share with us in relationship. And so what I hope that you are able to hear tonight and experience in your life is that there is a place for you. To the degree that you are in this room once again tonight going, who am I and what am I supposed to do with my life? Where is my place in this world? This promise to the disciples, I believe, is a promise to you. There is a place for you. And Jesus in himself has provided a way to get there. And it is not a way that you have to try harder. It is a way that we simply receive and enter into relationship. Relationship with one that invites us to a way of truth, the truth about you, that you are loved, that you are worthy. That's this truth that I believe we discover on this way and in this place. And it is a place of life, of real life. These things you have seen me do and even greater things. It's an invitation to experience real life. So let us resolve to not try any harder, but to simply trust God. As he said in that very first verse we read, do not be troubled, trust in me, trust in God. That he puts you on a way and on a way to a place that is filled with grace and love, and it's for you. Let's pray. God, thank you that there is a place. God, I pray for these students, and you know, I'm gonna, I pray this for myself, that we would believe that this message is for us, that your invitation to relationship with you, to know you, to grow in you, to be on the way with you is also for us. God, we confess the ways that we make this abstract, that we believe that this is true for everyone else. Help us to know the truth in this for us and each of the people sitting around us. God, you are good to us. Draw near to us as we draw near to you in Jesus' name, amen.